0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: In the world of Harry Potter, dementors are the very worst. Awful, wraith-like phantoms who suck away a person's soul, stealing their happiness and sense of meaning and value. Clinical depression is a kind of dementor, one that drains the life from many Australians. Depression robs sufferers of their joy and energy and offers false escape through isolation, addiction or even suicide. Ian Hickey has spent his life working to help people at their darkest times. Ian is a psychiatrist. He was the inaugural CEO of Beyond Blue, our national depression awareness campaign. And he's now co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And Ian's experience as a clinician has shown him that it is possible to recover from even the worst depression. And he wants to separate the myths from the facts so that everyone suffering from this cruel Dementor can get the care that they need. His book is called The Devil You Knew. Hi, Ian.
0: Hi, Sarah.
1: Ian, I used that metaphor of the Dementor to explain depression. How do you explain what it feels like?
0: well, you just did a better job than my book. (laughs) I wish I'd picked that one up myself. But the devil idea, the thing about being taken over by something, and I think quite rightly as you described that, robs you of life, of a life spirit, of a life force, of a life energy. Not just a simple psychological idea or a normal mood, but something that sucks the life out of you. is a much better description of something about 20% of us will have in our lifetime. And I say that because 80% of us won't. 100% 100% of us will use the word depression. Hopefully we'll be sad. Hopefully we'll cry. Hopefully we'll have emotionality. We'll have joy. But only one in five of us will have this thing which is quite different and I'd say poorly understood.
1: When someone turns up in your office, is it quite clear immediately to you if they're depressed?
0: Most of the time, the people, but by the time someone gets to my office... It's not only clear from their body language, their behaviour, but they're usually surrounded by family, spouses, children, others who are in a state of even higher distress of getting the person to care or have failed in their journey in care, and they're worried. They're worried to their wit's end that the person is not themselves, that their life is at stake, and they've had trouble either getting good care or getting the healthcare system to take it. And, of course, the person themselves often doesn't really want to be there.
1: How might they describe what's going on? What sort of words do people use to describe themselves in that state?
0: Well, first of all, they usually have an explanation. Humans always have a story, and the story usually locates the problem elsewhere. I've got a problem with finances. I've got a problem with work. I've got a problem with my childhood. I've got a problem with the fight that we're having at home. You know, if the, all these people who drag me in here were just nicer to me, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, so they, it externalises the kind of nature of the problem to explain it because it's kind of inexplicable and, and we're all more comfortable when we have an explanation. And you turn around and go, yeah, all that's true. Yeah, you bet your, family, your relationships are on the line, your work's on the line, you just lost your job, your wife's going to leave, you are abusing alcohol. But when did it really start? Like what happened first? Like what's the sequence here? What were you like and then what have you become? And then if we can get that far, if people can hang around long enough, then we often disappear into the just really how bad and how dark it has been.
1: We often think about depression as a feeling, a mood. How is it a physical experience as well?
0: So one of my other motivations here is we are now psychologically literate. Everyone, and particularly younger people, have great words, great words about anxiety, around depression, about post-traumatic stress, and we can now put words on most of our moods, our emotionality. They are normal moods. Thank God. Humans are emotional things. That's how we actually interact with each other. So people talk about being depressed or sad or tearful or anxious and go, great, that's good. But depression isn't that. So I found myself in this weird world of saying to people, now, look, you're sick. They go, yeah, I am sick. I told the doctor I was sick, but the doctor said I was depressed. I said, I'm not depressed. I'm sick. I go, no, no, you are sick. It's physiological. I had this great experience earlier this year of going to the library of the Royal Society of Medicine in London. And they had this exhibition, The Anatomy of Melancholia, basically. Uh, and it uh, was The Age of the actual name of the exhibition. But it tracks from the Greeks historical writings about the nature of depression. So if you think this was made up in 1980 by American psychiatrists or you think it was made up last week by a pharmaceutical company, you can read what the Greeks wrote. And they wrote about the physiology. They wrote about the way in which the body was perturbed, things moving around, black bile and stuff moving around, that it was physical, This idea that was all psychological and just cognitive and just emotionality, again, you're kidding. These people are really sick. And you can track it from the Greeks through the Romans through the Middle Ages to our own thing and go, you know what, this has been a recurring thing in humans across our evolutionary paths.
1: What are some of the physical symptoms or manifestations of those experiences? Like how does someone's body feel when they're depressed?
0: So I think the best example is jet lag. Now, if you've ever been jet lagged, and you find yourself wake up in Europe, or you wake up in North America, and you're awake, but you don't feel right. You have no energy. You can't concentrate. You've left your gut somewhere over the Pacific, and you've left your musculoskeletal system somewhere over away, and nothing is working. And you're trying to stay awake. You're trying to concentrate. You're trying to engage. You don't feel like eating. It's, eating's all wrong. You can't actually respond in the right way. You're really struggling to concentrate, but you know it's physical. You know it's your body's systems aren't talking to each other. And then you can't sleep when you want to sleep. You're awake. And then suddenly you're overwhelmingly tired when you were trying to do something else. You know you're not functioning cognitively in the world, but you know you're physically perturbed. That's actually, in that case, jet lag, your body clock and all its internal systems not working with each other. But just imagine being like that, not for three days or one week. Imagine being like that continuously. The pleasure, the most important thing Well, physically, it's fatigue, sleep disturbance, gut disturbance, musculoskeletal pain. They're the physical things. But the pleasure's gone out of life. You can't enjoy a meal. You can't enjoy food. You can't enjoy physical activity. You're doing it, but there's no pleasure associated with it.
1: Let's talk in about why some of us suffer from depression, but as you say, not all of us. Most forms of psychotherapy pay a lot of attention to our earliest experiences and the kind of childhood that we had. How significant a factor is an unhappy childhood in developing depression as an adult?
0: For most people, not that much. Now, that's a bit surprising because everyone goes, hang on a second. Surely that Freud bloke and everything else is all about your mother. I love mothers. I was very fortunate to have a great mother myself. Many people do. Many people have great parents. Yeah, but many people most people who get depressed do not have a bad childhood. There are many other things that go on. They may have had temperamental characteristics And for some people who have had very traumatic experiences and have had very difficult childhoods, that may be a key risk factor. But the idea that everything about us, our personality, the way we behave and the illnesses that we have psychologically are simply explained by childhood factors is largely not true. Now, some of the greatest work in the world was done up the road here at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Nick Martin and his colleagues for four decades have led work looking at how much of the Proportion of the explanation of depression in the population is explained by genetics, and the answer is about one-third.
1: Genetics it's about one-third. genetics,
0: one third. and the answer for childhood, very little. What about <laughs> and, this, and But current environment's about 10%, so the, the answer around the childhood thing's about 10%, but the current, current circumstances really do matter. So genetics matters, current circumstances matter. Childhood itself matters for childhood problems, <laughs> but not necessarily for the onset later in life of anxiety and depression and other mental health problems.
1: What about an experience of significant trauma like sexual abuse or a, a terrible car accident? Do those kinds of things tend to tip
0: someone into Let's depression? take the first one. So significant abuse and more than neglect, but significant abuse of a child, particularly by parental figures, et cetera. Yes. So when something bad happens, it can be a large explanatory factor in that particular setting. However, it's not the case for the majority of people that they've been subject to that. Most people with depression have grown up in perfectly okay when a great psychotherapist, Winnicott, used to say, a good enough family relationship, good enough parenting, good enough mothering. It was no longer the explanation. But we have a cultural bias to saying it is the explanation. And, in fact, society over time has moved to treat its children a whole lot better. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of abusive children, neglect of children, sexual abuse, physical abuse, has declined over time. But interestingly, rates of depression and anxiety amongst young people are going in the opposite direction. They're going up, not down.
1: Tell me more about what's understood about the genetics and the, the role that genes play in depression. I mean, are there are there particular genes associated with clinical depression?
0: Oh, we wish there were. You know, back in the 1980s, we were that close to having the serotonin transporter gene and the other growth factor genes and some specific genes. It was all going to be like it is for diseases that run strong in families, haemophilia or for Huntington's disease, or we'd find the specific genes. Looked like a good idea. We're going well there for a while. And some of them related to our treatments, like to serotonin-related drugs. Only trouble is, like all great things in science, turned out not to be true. So the great understanding now is that genetics is very important, but there are many, many different genes that come together. And in each individual, there's different combinations of genes that explain. Now, that's not surprising Most complex human systems, the brain, the immune system, hormonal systems, have more than one or two genes. My personal favorite, the body clock, has thousands because they're so important to survival. They have many regulatory mechanisms that are acting. So it's the combination that you uniquely have. So there's a strong genetic factors, and those genetic factors tend to aggregate or come together in families, so it runs strongly in families. really important to know what runs in your family. And to look at that, so we know at a population level, about one third is genetics. We know in certain individuals, their relative degree of risk compared with others through new things called polygenic risk scores. But, but, there is no simple genetic test and there's certainly not one or two key genes.
1: Why is it, Ian, that mood disorders like depression tend to appear in adolescence and not before if it's something that is partly there in our genes? Why does it not show up till later?
0: You can't get depression until you've got a mood state to have emotional development. Now, lots of things, you'll be aware, that uh, teenagers can do that little kids can't do. So, we have this thing in, in the whole of mental health called age dependent phenotypes. You can only do what the brain can do at that age. So, you know, under three, very limited to what kids can do, but they can bawl and scream and say no. You know, and then after that, primary school age kids can become very anxious. So, anxiety and then they have attentional problems, developmental problems are the main mental health problems of primary school kids then this marvellous thing happens, puberty. (laughs) During puberty, it's not just hormonal. It's going on in their head too. You know, it's a brain developmental system. It's the development of the emotional systems, and the emotional system's relationship with the other bit, the thinking brain, the new brain meets the old brain. The old brain's that which we share with most other animals. The new brain's the human bit. It's the interaction between the two, which is the regulation then of mood states. Now, that's very complicated, in fact, over the teenage period, and uh, for those particularly... Uh, parents of teenage boys, let's just not talk teenagers here, let's talk 25, you know, it takes a while, can go on for quite a while, Some hang in there, hang in there. So with a the 14-year-old son,
1: you're breaking my heart here. Just hang in there, I...
0: <laughs> hang in there, because that whole period of development and then hormonal systems, there's important gender-related differences here too as well, of course, for young women developing menstrual cycles additionally, although estrogen is very good for your brain, I'll just say that along the way, but its ups and downs can be challenging. So there's very important developmental processes. Now those processes are normal, but when they go astray during that period or they're not happening normally, then we see the onset of all of the major adult-type psychiatric disorders, but particularly the mood disorders.
1: Let's look more under the hood, as, as you put it, what's happening in our brain when we're depressed. What part of the brain is being activated in that experience of clinical depression?
0: And this is why being a psychiatrist now is such fun (laughs) because when I was young, you had to wait till people died and then collected the brain. You couldn't see it. And if you're a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist, you could see all these things working. Now we can see the brain working. So there's huge interest in what is going on and what is the circuitry. So we knew the cabling system before by looking at dead brains. Now we can see those cabling systems in real life. Who's talking to who? Which bits are talking? So the frontal lobe bits, which are the thinking bits, are the bits that mainly sit above the subcortical bits, or the old bits. So now the, the old front,
1: bits, front. If I put my hand on my forehead, is this where yes, my don't, it, is? don't
0: bang that into a car or a wall. Okay, be very. In fact, if you have teenage sons, put them in helmets and don't <laughs> let them bang to that. The thing. Twenty-five. That's right.
1: So, so that's the that's the frontal cortex yes. there. Yes. Yes.
0: And it's sitting there, sending the most important signals backwards and forwards to the emotional bits underneath that, deep in those frontal lobes. But underneath the subcortical bits, the so-called basal ganglia, the things that drive motor behaviour and emotionality and some really nice things like pleasure, like dopamine and, geez, that felt good, I think I'll do that again. You know, that stuff's down there, strongly reinforced.
1: And these are deeper, older parts deeper of the older brain so got two that bits. we share with other, yeah. with other species. They've got the
0: pleasure bits, the motor bits, and the fear bits. So off to the side in the temporal lobes are the fear bits. Ah, that's good. lion's going to eat me. <laughs> Get out of here, that bit. So the fear response, and it sits on top. That's uh, the amygdala sitting on top of the hippocampus, which is the memory bit. Really interesting. You put fear and memory right next to each other. Very important to remember (laughs) not to stand in front of that line again, you know, or to get yourself out. So we have very strong ways of learning quickly once to escape things that are really bad, but they then interact with the mood states that go with them. If you think about the things you remember the most, they're things where strong emotionality is attached and, and including that they hurt. And emotionality rights to relationships. What do we care about? What are we close to? What do we respond to in a positive way? Positive emotionality. Because I think a key understanding about depression is to understand it's often loss of emotionality, loss of emotional connection, numbness, not positive emotionality.
1: So am I understanding you you correctly in that in depression, it's those older, ancient parts of the brain connected with those primal drives of pleasure and fear? They're the ones that are in control when we're feeling depressed, not the thinking
0: brain. Yeah, they've taken over. They've taken over. They've gone astray. They're taken over Then they're not responding. This is why it's so hard. Oh, right, I'm going to tell myself I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. Well, actually, I am depressed. <laughs> so the
1: thinking brain really has, what, not much, not much agency in that state?
0: The more severe the depression, the more deeply you're in it, just telling yourself to get better or other people telling you to get better or just telling you what to do. I'm going to have a hard word with myself. <laughs> Good luck with that. You're not going to turn around. those. Now, those other systems drive your body clock, your hormonal system, your immune system, down through your brainstream and down through your hormonal system, your hypothalamic pituitary stress response, the cortisol bit, they're sitting right underneath it. And they're the bits who got their hands on the steering wheel of those other body systems. So when they're off, they take with them all those other body systems, resulting in your original thing. God, I feel sick.
1: Let's talk more about the, the body clock and the role that it plays in depression. How is that how are they connected?
0: So one of the really important advances in the last two decades is humans coming to realise they're like bears or they're like flowers or they're like, they've got seasonality. In fact, the Nobel Prize in Medicine in uh, 2017 was given in circadian medicine to the guys who discovered how the circadian clock works at a molecular level in flies.
1: And our circadian clock is just the day-night, 24,
0: 24 So 24 yeah. So when circle. people say, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, I go, that's, that's, that's nice, but what do you do during the day? Because it's a 24-hour battery. It's an on-off. You've got to be out and be active during the day. And then at night, we're not supposed to be sitting in front of screens and doing everything else. We're supposed to be in the dark, asleep. And it's regenerative. For the brain, it's particularly important. There's a whole bunch of stuff you do during the day that is excitotoxic. It hurts. It hurts your brain. Uses use up a lot of energy. When you're asleep, you're not asleep. Your brain's doing other stuff. Importantly, restoring it so you can wake up the next day full of energy again and do those. And strongly tied to the light-dark cycle. Now, I don't insult any listeners here, but if you believe in intelligent design, you'd think our body clock was 24 hours long and it would match the rotation of the Earth. It doesn't. We're slightly out of sync all the time. So we have to adjust to it all the time. And then we do... See, this is where Queenslanders are really smart. You would never invent daylight saving. Okay, the seasons change enough. We have to adjust to these things. How, does, play,
1: how does this play into depression,
0: though? Some people have forms of depression, what we now call circadian depression, if we have, for genetic reasons, they cannot easily reconcile themselves to the changes in the light-dark cycle. They wander off. They go free range. And you see this And importance in their normal developments. This is where the teenage thing matters. I don't have any teenage sons, but I love my teenage son uh, very dearly, Jack. But try getting him out of bed in the morning. It doesn't happen. Teenagers go to bed later, get up later. Okay? It's a normal developmental shift. People with depression or prone to depression actually go further. So they only, some become almost night owls. They almost become, you know, uh, go totally over to a reverse, which is interesting because actually rodents, you know, rats and mice, that's what they do. Humans, we are diurnal. We are get-out-in-the-daylight people. So for genetic reasons, if you're easily put off by change of seasons, by travelling, but just that you can't easily regulate every day, you are more prone to depression and some types of depression, particularly the ones that have proved historically hard to treat come back to this, are more likely, we would suggest, to be underpinned by body clock disturbances than by other kinds of stress response or other anxiety or other life events.
1: So depression, although we we use it as uh, a single category, there are lots of different kinds of depression caused by different things happening in the body.
0: There are. So unfortunately, depression is like saying you've got fever without specifying which bug caused it. Or, or any other body process, or like headache, without saying, is that a brain tumor, or is that migraine, or is that a sinus headache? Because fundamentally, the underlying process, what in medicine we like to call the pathophysiology, the thing that's driving it, is different. And we've had great trouble knowing that just from what you say. We, you know, because you say what it's like, and so most people who are talking about depression have overlapping descriptions, but in truth, they're describing different processes. And We have a better idea these days which ones are really driven by underlying anxiety with episodes of depression. One of the big emergent ones is around body clocks. Another is if you've grown up with other brain developmental problems, ADHD, autism and other difficulties, you're more likely to have these problems then emerge as a teenager. So we're trying to work out for each person what trajectory they're on, what what really matters to them. Because unless you deal with that, you're going to have trouble getting out of the hole and you're going to have trouble preventing it coming back.
1: Early in your career, Ian, you focused on clinical depression in older people. Is depression, you know, a common side effect of the ageing process, like wrinkles and grey hair?
0: I like grey hair since so I've now got it. Uh, when I was young, I used to love working with old people. <laughs> They're so nice. <laughs> they have such rich stories and life, and life events and stuff to share. But what often happened was something changed suddenly. And people go, oh, it's retirement. They've got old. I've just got demented. I was lucky at the time that brain imaging, as we now understand it, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI imaging was invented, and to have worked in there at the time, we'd go, hang on a second. This person has been functional their whole life, who's suddenly changed. A medical factor has changed. They've had a small stroke in the brain. We can see it in one of those deep areas. So some of the cases I talk about in the book, most fabulous examples of just finding for the first time, because you could see it, where, where a bit of that cabling had suddenly got turned off at the wrong point, precipitating this massive depressive episode in the person's going, you know what, this is very physical. This is just like stroke. This is just like other forms of medical diseases. But now we can see it and we can see how that structural change is good. Now, it's really important. We had tremendous progress in that area, of course, with preserving old brains, (laughs) okay? We don't age like our parents age and and generations. before. We don't smoke nearly as much. We have better lifestyles much better treatment of hypertension and diabetes. So the rates of depression due to physical causes are going down in older people, which is really good. And the rates of, of course, being active, which is also important for your brain, never retire, keep working. You can do this, Sarah, for another 20, 30, 40 years.
1: I feel so exhausted. I need to lie down.
0: (laughs) Stick at it. Because if you're socially engaged and you're active, you know, your brain responds. So the misunderstanding of the causes of depression in old age remains a huge problem. Are you depressed because you're old? No. In fact, older people have often (coughs) coped with life stresses are doing very well and if something goes wrong and they suddenly get depressed it's much more likely something medically has gone wrong.
1: So there's there's things that happen in deve- there's things that happen developmentally in adolescence and that might happen in old age. Another stage of life that seems to put people at great greater vulnerability of depression is for women in in pregnancy and also in menopause. Yeah. So what's what's the problem there?
0: Estrogen. It's a marvelous thing estrogen. When you've got it. When you've got it. Do not give it away. <laughs> And, and try and keep it on an even keel, okay? <laughs> so the cycling issue, so we see often the onset in younger women in association with onset their menstrual cycles, if they have other complications around the, their development, things like polycystic ovaries, endometriosis, unstable cycles, a lot of mood disturbance that runs around that, we often see the onset of very severe depressions for the first time when women have their first child. And so the, the sudden change in two things their hormonal cycle, but also their sleep-wake cycle. No need to point out to parents of young children, if you ever want to really find out whether you're really at risk, you go onto their sleep cycle. Kids have a four-hour sleep cycle. Adults don't. But the kid takes control (laughs) of your sleep-wake cycle. And if you're at risk, in fact, there are really good animal models of this now, of you can make up, (laughs) you can cause postnatal depression in animals by doing this exact factor, by changing their sleep-wake cycle. So the hormonal factor. And then menopause. And got, I must say, finally, finally, there's a great deal more emphasis on. Now, menopause starts in your brain first. So often you see the onset of mood disturbance before a lot of the other physical changes of menopause appear. I think quite unfairly and unrecognized and of course, untreated. So this is one of those areas that's been sadly, tremendously neglected, but where estrogen therapies or regular, regularization of estrogen which is otherwise very good for your brain. I must say as you age, can make a general point here? Because I think out of the women's health study and everything, a lot of women formed the view that estrogen was just a problem. <laughs> and while one looks at those studies longer term, while cancer risk needs to be moderated, one of the body organs that really benefit from continuing to have estrogen is your brain. And in terms of depression treatment in older women, it's an important issue.
1: What is the link in between COVID and depression? Because this was so interesting to me. It's not about, you know, social isolation or even grief, but something physiological. What's the connection?
0: I spent a lot of my time, Sarah, earlier with post-infective fatigue states and depression states. People go, that's not depression. I said, this is the best model we ever had for the onset of depression in relation to an environmental stressor or a physical effect. It's the immune response to the virus. So immune responses, which release these particular chemicals called cytokines, upset your sleep-wake cycle, they put your body off, they go to the brain. Now, when I was young, we were told they didn't go to the brain. Well, like most things in medicine, that turned out not to be true. They do, and they change the brain's responses. And if you are genetically prone to two things, a big immune response to COVID, and you've got the genetics then for depression, you may be particularly likely to get depressed. So the long COVID thing now, we're back to a fascinating area. To what extent? is the long COVID syndrome related to these syndromes, body cock disturbance, to what extent is it? Not the virus still being there, but the immune response and then the change in people who are otherwise genetically vulnerable.
1: So are people uh, how, how are people aware if they're more likely to be predisposed to developing depression after something like a serious COVID infection?
0: So here's the problem. You don't know till it happens. So one of the problems is if you've never been depressed before, same with the postnatal example. If you've never been depressed before and you get depressed for the first time... You go, where'd this come from? But and it you was think the it's because I've got
1: a baby and go, oh, I'm not sure who gosh. I am. Well, you think I've been so sick and I've been off work. So you look for, for reasons in your in your. So humans lifestyle. go
0: to what they know and what they understand. And they go to the context. I've just had a baby. Well, obviously that's the reason. They don't go, well, maybe one of the saddest cases I was ever involved in of a woman who had one of the most severe postnatal depressions I've ever seen who did not know that her own mother had had a postnatal depression for two years and that's why her mother was absent. If we had known that... In advance, we would have known that she was more likely to be at risk when faced with the same circumstances. In these situations, unless you've had the experience before, you don't know it. Now, you may have had, in fact, glandular fever before or something severe before and had a severe response. To go, You know what? I know I'm at risk. But many people will be first time. podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Knosky. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: Ian, explain to me the metaphor of the ladder that you use when explaining the origin, experience, and treatment of depression. Why is it good to think of a ladder here?
0: Well, Sarah. Inevitably when people in this situation, for psychological things, they want to know the cause. Why did I get here? And They want to debate forever and, you know, certain forms of psychotherapy. Have said, okay, let's just start at age two and let's go from there. They're going to go backwards. I try to make the emphasis that in truth, we don't often know the real sets of reasons that have landed you here. And really it's not the task. Now, here I draw on the analogy with other areas of medicine, with cancer or injury or heart attack. Once you've had the thing, once you're in there, exactly how you got there, is not the immediate task. The immediate task is to find the ladder out of there. Now, first of all, many people believe there isn't a ladder. They think they're just doomed. They're stuck. It's a dungeon. There's no way out, which is one of the common things here. You know, it's very important to reach in and go, no, no, no. There are, there are ladders, actually. Probably I should have said there's more than one. We've got to find the one, and we've got to start that journey rung by rung. It, won't, it will not be fixed today. It will not be fixed tonight, but we're going to start that journey out. And there are two tasks. Get the ladder. Get out. And the second task is don't come back. How do we not? And the treatments and the strategies may be different. So, first of all, let's put aside this this what I would say is often fruitless search for the cause, and focus on what works for you, because that that's the individual that's the individual journey. What works for you to get out of here as quickly as possible. Because being here is dangerous. Being here is bad. It's toxic. Lots lost by staying here. And then, how do we stay up?
1: Let's talk about some of the ladders that are offered by medicine. Tell me what was different about the medical treatments for depression that first appeared in the
0: 1980s? The world changed in the 1980s from going from we had treatments really back. Well, we had treatments to some degree since about the 1930s and 40s. Although very rare and including electroconvulsive therapies and other sorts of things were very, only the most severe situations. In the 1960s, we got the older antidepressant drugs for the first time, which actually worked, but geez, they were not easy to take. (laughs) And anyone who took them quit them, even when they worked, quit them very quickly. What kinds of other
1: consequences of the the side side effects?
0: Constipation, low blood pressure, dry mouth, loss of sexual function. Interesting about in terms of loss of sexual function, because now it's all anyone talks about. But, you know, people didn't take them for the shortest possible time. They're really hard to take long term. Come the 1980s, you had the Prozac-like drugs arrive, which were not more effective. They weren't better. In fact, Eli Lilly, who developed them, very famous books about this, chucked them back in the lab about four times saying, why would we go to market with something that's actually less effective than what's already out there? And only through the persistence of, of some important clinical people, I said, no, no, you're missing the point, that people can actually take them. <laughs> You know, therefore, they can be widely prescribed and safely prescribed, not by special psychiatrists, but by family doctors and others, the potential to treat a lot more people with something safe. That led to the Prozac generation. That led to the, okay, these are fairly straightforward, fairly low side effect profile pretty common and therefore the great number of people who've never been treated may receive medical treatment for the first time.
1: So you use that term Prozac Nation and I remember the kind of cultural angst around that era like we're medicalizing normal human experiences and emotions like grief and sadness. It's giving it to everyone for everything. It's a bit similar I think to the way ADHD and ADHD medications are spoken about now. Do you have like from a psychiatrist's point of view do you, did you share that concern? They were being too readily available to too many people who might not really need them.
0: At a population level, absolutely not. No, all the data we have in Australia, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, everywhere that's been done, is comes to the same conclusion: most people with depression never received access to treatment, and of those who received access to treatment, most often received not treatments that worked. <laughs> So if you look at the population level, that's the case. And the ADHD analogy is a very good one, very similar. However, if you go into certain populations, high wealth populations, high access to doctors, and and healthcare systems that are quick to prescribe and slow to provide psychological therapy, then you can find over-prescribing or over-treatment. We did a lot of work about this in Australia in the 1990s. Others did similar work in, in other countries to see that. So the problem at a population level was not... In fact, we published very important work in the 1990s showing that if you increased antidepressant prescribing, in the population as a whole, suicide rates went down. Now, I'm a doctor. I think people being alive is a really good thing. And then living longer lives, that's a really good thing. And in fact, brains being preserved by antidepressants is a good thing. But, but the distribution of care is a problem.
1: Okay. So as a psychiatrist, you believe these medications work. Do you understand why?
0: What I'm not are they a doing? Can I say it's not a matter of belief here? Well <laughs> you
1: believe you see the there's science, evidence. The evidence, the evidence. Yeah, so yeah, why? Why do they work? What are they doing in the brain?
0: Well, we know what they part of what they do, in a great Donald Rumsfield sense, there's stuff we don't know about what we don't know. So they're doing stuff also that we just don't understand. The complexity of the brain far outstrips our complex, our understanding of its function. So we know biochemically some of the things that they do the way in which they increase concentrations of serotonin in the in the gaps between nerve cells and the way the brain adapts to that we also know this helps the brain to grow synaptic connections. It's the connections, the nerve cell connections between brains. Here I'm wiggling my fingers to show lots of brain cells that are active in real time at the ends of my arms talking to each other. That's what brain cells are doing and, and increasing the concentrations of a number of these chemicals, serotonin in particular, but noradrenaline and dopamine. And then other brain trophic factors, things that cause like, they're like fertilizer for your brain cells. They go up, they grow. And then we can measure now In brain scans, the extent, if you're taking those drugs, those brain cell connections go up. If you're not taking those drugs and you are depressed, they go down. So we see the structural change. This is not just, you know, airy-fairy, made it up, sounds like a good idea, came on a pharmaceutical brochure. There's a science here.
1: There is a, a simplistic explanation, Ian, that I think still has traction in the general public and in the media, and it goes like this. Depression is caused by a chemical
0: imbalance
1: in the brain, say a lack of serotonin, and antidepressants raise the level of that chemical, and voila, people get better.
0: Yeah, so the chemical imbalance or the chemical deficit theory, that's a bit different. And this goes to treatments versus causes. Now, I don't know how you feel about your arthritis and stuff, but I reckon ibuprofen, you know, and stuff, best thing ever invented. <laughs> I get out of bed every morning, feel a whole lot better with my arthritis. Because the anti-inflammatory treatment that I take allows me to reduce the pain. That is not the cause of my arthritis. My arthritis has been driven by some other inflammatory process. It's not that
1: you've got a lack of that medication right. in your bloodstream.
0: Aspirin, anything else. We have, there are many symptomatic... <laughs> medicine is full of symptomatic treatments and not many curative treatments. And we take them all the time. And they work. And we know how they work. It doesn't mean that that's the cause. So this idea that depression is due to a lack of serotonin, that's a different thing. And that... What happened in the 1980s in an attempt to explain the problem first was the imbalance idea, meaning it's not balanced. The system's out of whack, which I would agree with, and that putting this in restores normal function. I think that bit's true. What is really going on in the serotonin system, why it's become dysfunctional, why the brain has changed, remains what we call a mystery. It's in the <laughs> Rumsfeld unknown unknowns.
1: You mentioned the side effects that were there with the earlier classes of, of antidepressant medication. What are some of the side effects that do go along with the antidepressants that people take now Common that are commonly prescribed?
0: So let's be clear, the antidepressants are medicines. The real ones do stuff. As a consequence, in some people, depending on sensitivity and, and your own genetics of metabolism, that for certain proportions of people, they will have side effects. So the ones that matter, the serotonergic ones, the Prozac-like ones, particularly prone to giving you a headache, giving you gut disturbance or nausea if you're sensitive when you first take them. If you do that, trust me, you won't take them again. (laughs) Small proportion of people when they first take them also, particularly if they're anxious, may become more anxious, may become more agitated. They're not sedatives. The older drugs were much more sedative. So some people are already anxious, they're already worked up in in the first few days, may become more anxious or more agitated. We'll come back to the book where people become actively suicidal. However, most people take them. Another great study is we've looked at 20,000 Australians taking these drugs regularly and 70% of them say we're so much better off. I but, but I live with two common sets of side effects, weight gain over a longer period and some degree of sexual dysfunction, usually loss of interest. Now, this is kind of interesting because in the past, no one ever talked about sex. So these are people who've recovered from depression. So they feel that their sex life should be back to normal, their be is back to normal, but they're reporting it's not really kind of the same as it was.
1: We were talking earlier, Ian, about the kind of depression that is connected to changes in our body clock, in the the circadian depression. Do those antidepressants like Prozac work if that's the cause of your depression?
0: No, not well. Generally speaking, now it to be too categorical, but. Uh, A lot of my career has been devoted in a really weird way to the people who don't respond to SSRI. So the SSRI responders, the Prozac responders, typically are anxious, depressed. If you were an anxious kid who was an anxious teenager, who was a boy who was an anxious alcohol-abusing teenager, had panic attacks, got depressed, and has episodes of depressions. Think Gary McDonald, you know, like talks marvelously, Bastard from Beyond Blue, about being anxious his whole life, but has episodes of depression. Or Jeff Gallup, the previous Premier of WA, talks about this. They know they're anxious people, but they get depressed SSRIs, do, as do a lot of psychological therapies, do really well. But the circadian one, the body clock one, the one that comes on with changes in season, the one that feels like jet lag, and they go, no, no, people talk about being depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm sick. I'm tired. And I'm just exhausted. And I'm oversleeping. And it isn't making any difference. Sometimes mixed up with periods of actually having higher energy for briefer periods, They do not do well with SSRIs. And there's really interesting, really good work coming out of Melbourne, a guy called Sean Kane, marvellous guy, looking at whether SSRIs make people more sensitive to the external light and upset their body clock and make it more irregular. Have you got a regular body clock? Are you a regular body clock? My
1: cats and my body clock. I have no body clock anymore. I've just got cats that wake me up at 4 o'clock. Children (laughs) keep me up at night. Cats wake me up in the morning. So there's two
0: things here. If you're a morning person, good on you. you you Your chance of getting depressed if you're a really morning person are significantly less than evening so I should people.
1: thank that cat, should I?
0: Well, if they're making you do that. Well, it <laughs> depends whether you are or aren't one of those persons. So there's a kind of morning-evening thing. If you're an evening person, I think you're a much nicer person. You're much more fun. I'd much rather Would go out
1: with you. Would that be you, you Ian, Well, we just say, just survive, we just say
0: getting... okay, they're fun people, but they're more prone to depression. But they also have more irregular clocks. They're more easily upset from day to day. So they don't stick to such a routine. They're more perturbed by it. And that may have to do with increasing light sensitivity or just external events. They don't stick to the routine. They get depressed more. So we treatments that regularise the clock, medically or behaviourally, help those people more than the Prozac-like drugs.
1: So it's so important that someone knows the sort of depression or or what it's connected with in terms of looking for that ladder out of the the dark hole. Yeah,
0: so we spend a lot of our time now not just scanning brains and stuff like that, but getting people to wear, you know, Fitbits and other things and clocks and monitor their sleep-wake cycle and monitor their seasonality and see whether we can figure out what body system is in the driver's seat here and the one we should focus on now to get out of the hole and stay out of the hole.
1: If... Clinical depression isn't actively treated in one of these ways. What happens? I mean, it, it tends to be cyclical, doesn't it? Will it just go away by
0: itself eventually? In some, Well, this is very interesting historically because <laughs> historically, of course, we've treated people with depression long before there were treatments. So, and when severe, the majority would go away after like a year or two years, and if you were still alive, and if you still had a family, and if you had a job, and then it would be likely to come back again one or two years later. So many people with severe depression, they did recover, but their lives were ruined and they had recurrent episodes. And each episode... I mean, we don't say to people with asthma, look, I hope you get through this one. (laughs) And if if you're still breathing at the end of the next one, it'll probably pass. You know, and there are many examples in medicine of things that are life-threatening but do end, response to COVID as an infection. Infection's a classic. You've got to survive the infection, you know, and you'll recover. The question is, what's the damage done? And what was the threat to life associated with the episode? So it is true, but it's very annoying. And I still want to argue with a lot of my medical colleagues, oh, well, I don't know we should do anything. particularly. We'll just see whether they get over it. Okay, well, let's assume they're still here. It's a very odd approach.
1: And I guess that leads to this question, which is a painful one, Ian. But in your view, is everyone suffering clinical depression at risk of suicide?
0: So if you take it as a group, that group has much higher rates of death from suicide, death from heart attack, other sets of complications, and a much more miserable life, much higher rates of divorce, much higher rates of alcohol abuse, much higher rates of accident injury, and all of those really good uh, Swedish data now, really all sorts of other physical health problems, (laughs) lots of other stuff, is the consequence. Actually, smaller brains too. Increased risk of dementia, shrinking brains from untreated depression. So we know a whole lot of things, but the risk to death through accident injury, through deliberate suicide or through accident injury is high in the episode. So this is an interesting thing. For the people I uh, clinically look after, I just assume they're in that category. Now, most people are very reluctant to tell you that. They don't want people to know. Interestingly, with new technologies, we ask them on computers, they go, yeah, that's the way I'm feeling actually, (laughs) but I didn't want to tell you in case you do something about it. Or when they recover, they'll often say, oh, look, uh, you'll be surprised to hear what I thought when I was in that state. And I go, actually, I'm not surprised to hear.
1: So if someone turns up in a very bad way, say at an emergency department, what can help, what can give relief in that moment at that first point of call?
0: So from healthcare, we know what we're doing. I spent a lot of time up of an age in emergency departments. When I arrive there with my heart attack, my irregular pulse, all the things that go wrong with me, all those close to me, they go, We know what to do. We're gonna put you in that bed, we're gonna give you the mind things, we're gonna make sure you survive this bit where you're at greatest risk, and then we're gonna connect you with the health system. And it will take care of you. You know what happens to that around? You think, Oh my god, I am gonna survive. <laughs> you know, I might have been I might have been pretending there for a while, they didn't have a problem, but I did have a problem. And now I've got some confidence and hope. And these people know what they're doing. And, you know, we're pretty trusting that that will help. And we're pretty hopeful. And when, when I was young, people did not want to get treatment for cancer. We had to have a, cancer was a word, not a sentence. Now most people think we can cure most cancers, which is pretty optimistic. But we do enter into these difficult areas with hope and with enthusiasm and with medical research. That's what we should be doing with people who present to emergency departments with suicidality.
1: Is there, are there medical treatments in that first moment that can alleviate suffering? I mean, if, as you said, a lot of these treatments don't happen overnight. But if someone is at risk of suicide because of their depression, what would a doctor do in that moment?
0: Well, it's important to make sure that people are safe. So a lot of what we've done is, in a sense, environmental contingencies, okay, creating safe environments. But safe environments are not prisons or jails or security. They're people. In fact, I love visiting psychiatric hospitals in the developing world because you know what they're full of? Families. <laughs> You go into rooms where there aren't nurses in white coats and security guards and bars. There's families sitting around the beds of people who are at significant risk. And I thought, I think I'd i feel a whole damn lot safer if that was the case. So surrounding with people who care. Then it may require, like, getting some sleep. Like we just make a sleep-wake cycle. Actually making sure a person gets a good night's sleep, relieving anxiety, relieving agitation. So we have treatments that do that in the short term, medically, but also environmentally. And now there's a whole new world of treatments uh, those related to ketamine, related to other treatments, where it appears for reasons that we, <laughs> again, can't explain. Some things, in fact, we really can't explain them because our ideas about depression are that it takes weeks to treat. But this is happening with ketamine. It's happening with the new psychedelics. It has happened previously with things like ECT, now with transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. There's stuff you can do that doesn't leave, at least in the short term. And you know what happens? The moment a person realises, hey, guess what? I've been in a weird state so like uh, we these experiences with eschatamine and ketamine at the moment. People come in feeling terrible. They have this thing. And, and they go, I think I'd like to go to dinner with my spouse. I think I'd like to go to the movies. And suddenly think, that's pleasure. That's life. Now, it may pass again quickly, but they've seen the future. They've seen the light.
1: How quickly can things change for someone using more traditional uh, treatments? What have you seen? What are some of the stories that stick with you of, of people who have been able to get out of that black
0: hole? Well, see, this is the great... Problem, <laughs> right? I know lots of those people. They don't rush back to work and go, wow, I'm back oh, in life. All oh, good now. I was in a terrible spot. I'm sorry I've been a pain in the neck at work and I'm sorry I've messed up my life with my kids and work and I'm sorry I've drunk so heavily for the last five years. But, you know, I'm really back to being a productive person. I do try to use a number of examples in the book. Now, people could take this for what they're worth, of uh, Jeff Gallop and Gary McDonald and, in fact, uh, Malcolm Turnbull of people who had had really significant depressive episodes, including Malcolm being quite open about his own suicidality during that period, who've got their life together and said, you know what? I've got to understand my own vulnerability. I've got to understand that whether I want to or not, I'm one of those people in the wrong circumstances who can get depressed. So what am I going to do? I like the Malcolm Turnbull one. Well, he went back to being Prime Minister. For anyone who can remember, he first got depressed after just getting dumped as opposition leader, but actually didn't give away his life, got talked back into going into politics, became Prime Minister. I count that as a pretty good outcome. Shame he got the job again over the same issue, but he didn't get depressed again. Here's the thing. You know, despite, you might say, even the greater personal loss, he developed strategies. He, he's, a, he's an advocate of the body clock stuff.
1: So... For you as a clinician, where does your focus change once a person comes out of a depressive episode?
0: We aren't going there again. The name of this book in the past tense, people say, uh, Ian, I think you've got the title wrong. Isn't it The Devil You Know? I go, no, 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 no. It's the one you're left behind. It's not about having this thing as part of you. You know the American idea you're an addict for life? There's this thing you're a depressive for life, you're stuck with it for life, you're a mental you don't health think problem. that's true. No, no. Oh, let's oh, go to that one. <laughs> no, no, it's the kind of vulnerable person as distinct from the person who understands their vulnerability and gets it sorted. And is not, you know, that that addict idea, the addict idea of you're an addict for life is a really wrong idea. You know, lots of people have had problems with substance abuse, get over it and do not return to it. Lots of people who've had depression, and I know many of them in my personal lives, professional lives, judges, doctors, airline pilots, and many regular people, (laughs) they've had bad episodes. They've come to find the right ladder the right thing and apply it, the thing going earlier on, if you don't apply it, if you pretend nothing happened or you say it was just due to the bad job, it was just due to the bad wife, it was all the kid's fault, you know, it won't happen again. That is risky thinking.
1: So is the aim to get someone to a point in their recovery where they can stop their medication?
0: For some people, yeah. For others, no. I mean, if you've got asthma, you know, some of the people grow out of it. You've got epilepsy, some people grow out of it. You've got diabetes, some people grow out of it. But other people, given the nature of them individually, I often will go through the experiment with people. Nearly everyone wants to stop every drug all the time. Except when it's been life-saving. Except when it's come back. So use the example in the book, one of my favorite examples. I tried to stop a man with antidepressants. Time to stop the antidepressant. He had a twin brother, he had a terrible life. He could see parallel life running, I go, no way. I got my wife back, I got my job back, I got my kid. Back. And he said, None of that, I'm a nicer person. I was an irritable, difficult, irascible guy with a short fuse. Now I'm quite a nice person. I quite like myself. But I I can't get there just psychologically. There's something about the way that I'm wired, and I like the new me as compared with the old me.
1: A lot of the awareness campaigns around mental health, which you helped instigate from, from Beyond Blue, and it should really change the kind of stigma, I think, around... Uh, mental illness and around depression over the last 20, 30 years in Australia, which is a great thing. But a lot of the emphasis there is on what we can do individually to look after our our minds and moods, you know, have more exercise, uh, more sleep, cut back on alcohol, volunteer, be socially engaged. I mean, I'm sure all of these things help make those of us who are well feel happier. But can they help you if you're clinically depressed? Can they help you avoid an a, um, episode or get you out of one, those sort of strategies?
0: So you've raised the classic public health kind of issue. At a public health level, we do all those things all the time. We should all smoke less and exercise more and eat better. And true, that's true from a depression point of view. We should all do all those things, sleep better, use less alcohol, be more physically active, take care of our body clocks. You said the most important one, stay socially connected, stay participating. Very important to your mental health and well being. As a treatment of depression on its own, for people who are clinically depressed, it's usually not enough. Now, if it's part of the strategy of staying well, once you are well, then things like physical exercise, body clocks, diets, not overdoing alcohol and other substances, staying connected and participating, going back to work, staying at work, they all are an important part of the total regime, but for many people, they are not sufficient. They're not the latter on their own.
1: The other aspect in this, Ian, is is awareness is only one part of the puzzle, isn't it? I mean, I always think of that with the are you okay day. Someone might say, no, I'm not, but then where do you send them? Where's the treatment? It's like we've done so much focus on awareness around depression, mental health, but where do people go, particularly if they're wanting wanting to use the public system and have that kind of uh, personalised care that you've been describing is so important with treating something as complex as depression?
0: So here's the uh, ups and downs of my own professional life. <laughs> we are gold medal winners on awareness. Do we love that? We love to be gold medal winners in Australia. Maybe outstripped by New Zealand these days, but we're right at the top. We've done a great job on the awareness issue. I personally think it's time to replace are you okay with are we okay collectively. It's not just because the, the are you okay is also you, what happens next. What do we do about the problem? So we have not reconstructed the health system. If we say, you know, get screening for cancer or you have heart disease and you come, our health system goes great. So glad you're here. We're going to fix this, and we invest in it. We invest a lot in it. In the mental health system, we're still living with a 1980s health system that says, oh, look, really? And couldn't you just see a GP? And We have changed some things. I must say one of the big things out of Beyond Blue and changing our system was to bring psychological services under Medicare from 2001. That's a big success. People may not remember this now, but there was no Medicare for that, and not more widely available to 2006. But there's huge problems now in the equity and distribution of that. The equity and access to that's got worse. So the problem you said, and you raised a really important issue at the public sector end, for many of those people in greatest need, they have the least access. So I don't think it's acceptable anymore just to run awareness campaigns if you aren't going to say, okay, what's the next step? And what is the pathway to quality care? Get the best care. Think cancer centre. Think, you know, trial centre. You've got to be able to get it. So what drives me to total distraction is... The people I know who've got really well have got really expert care, but they're the minority. And as, as young people say to me all the time, that's been by accident. They knew someone, they happened by random. It shouldn't be random.
1: Most of us, in don't appreciate our health until we've been unwell. Has your work with people whose minds are struggling given you a, an appreciation about how precious things are when it's okay and it's not something those of us who aren't in depression should take for granted?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm very fortunate in my professional life to have spent people. I mean, I, people say to me all the time, how do you do that mental health stuff? It must be terrible. I said, i Ken, it's great. It's
1: Why? you know, it's what makes it, great?
0: it is so human. It's what humans are really about. And when they lose it, you have this deep, deep insight into the loss of being really human. And then when they recover it, the joy associated with that, the return of tears, the return of emotionality, that's what being human is really about. It's not robotic. It's not transactional. It's not isolatory. It's not in your own head. It's a social group and a physiological process. So I found it, you know, the most incredibly rewarding area of medicine to be in, and the complete opposite to what people think. Not to say it isn't stressful, it isn't difficult, but it's so engaging because it's so human.
1: So there's not a part of you that wishes you could just replace a hip or, you know, operate on a heart?
0: I've had those moments. <laughs> One does have those moments. No, when I was a young doctor, I thought, oh, my God, that's boring. <laughs> so mindless. And then some doctor said, yeah, that's why it's so good. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Come on. This is, the, this is the 21st century stuff. This is where it's really at.
1: Ian, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.